0: So, who was this Isaac Asimov, anyway? What did he do? What sort of things happened in his life? And importantly, how do those things inform his work as an author? We're going to find out today. This is Galaxy, a podcast about the sci-fi literary universe of Isaac Asimov. Welcome to Galaxy. I'm Jason Stark.
1: I'm Stephanie Yunker.
0: And I'm Jacob Yunker. Stephanie and Jacob are newcomers to Isaac Asimov's sci-fi novels, and I'm a more seasoned reader of them. Together, we are exploring the deep themes and meanings of these books and looking at their relevance for today as well. Although today, actually, as we're recording, we're not actually talking about one
2: particular novel, are we? Not one particular novel, um, unless you want to consider the crazy life of Isaac Asimov. A novel. Uh, Maybe. He wrote plenty of autobiographies, so. (laughs) Yeah. Really? He did.
1: How many did he write? I think
2: three, Three. and on more than one occasion, he let other people write in them, which I don't know how much of an autobiography it is at that point.
0: Well, at any rate, I mean, all of this has something to say about kind of the character of this character. We're going to do this kind of in chronological fashion and kind of jump back and forth between personal and professional and obviously there's a lot of overlap. I mean, that's not a perfect distinction by, you know, it's not it's not supposed to be. Now, why are we doing this episode? Well, I think, you know, I think listeners will appreciate it uh covering some of the history of Asimov's life. I don't really consider this to be us being like Asimov devotees or something and saying like, yeah, well we've got to do this biography episode. What interests me more is understanding how his life impacts his work yes so i think the context of the events of his life it'll kind of inform our journey a little bit as we go some it'll inform kind of backward looking at iRobot probably and some it will inform forward as we're going to be getting into other books coming up down the road
2: yes i'm very excited to see um where some of these ideas were birthed from all right well let's get into it then Jacob, you want to lead us off? Yeah, so we open the scene, obviously, with the parents, um, Anna Rachel and Judah Asimov, and they came from uh, families of millers, more or less. Uh, In this sense, millers can mean anything from grain millers to engineer millers or water millers. Basically, these were people who worked textile, Um, and that's the family that Isaac was born into. Uh, he did have two siblings, uh, Manya and Stanley, but they were much younger than himself. Well, Manya was not too much younger, uh, but so they had a very close relationship. But Stanley was seven years younger than himself. Uh, they They started out in Russia, which is where we get the very interesting name Asimov, right and he he uh, he liked to describe pronouncing his own name Asimov, with articles, actually. he always told people say has say him and then say of, and then get rid of the H's, and that's my name. Asimov. Interesting. And Hmm. sometimes you got to go to great lengths to get
0: people to pronounce your name right.
1: Yes, our last name is Yunker with a J, and the amount of times that you get Junker is just annoying.
0: As for me, everyone just asks me if I'm related to Tony Stark.
1: You don't get any Game of Thrones puns?
2: Not so much. I thought you'd be his older brother.
1: There's just this range. Good
0: old Uncle Tony. <laughs> so, yeah, he was born in Russia, and it was somewhere between nineteen nineteen and nineteen twenty. It's yeah. not exactly clear um he claimed an early nineteen twenty date for his birth. His mom
2: actually liked uh to lie about that date just to get him into school.
0: oh yeah, um, she wanted to get him into public school, but he was like past the date or something for when his birthday was like if you're you know mm. if you're a kid that's got a late in the year birthday, then you know what we're talking about yeah um. But so she lied about his age uh, in so order to get him in. Months. Yeah, in order to get him into school at the right time. Um, but let's see. They emigrated from Russia in 1923. Right. And,
2: after Manya was born, the sister.
0: That's right. And uh, they settled in New York City. Isaac never learned Russian from his parents because he was young enough when he moved that he picked up English really quickly. He also maintained Yiddish, which his parents spoke. And that was something that he kept all of his life. But he never actually did learn Russian.
1: So they were a a Jewish family?
0: Yes, they were. Okay. Uh, They were a Russian Jewish family. And Petrovichi, where they came from, was, I think it was just inside what was called the Pale of Settlement. This was an area in Russia which historically Jewish people were allowed to settle there. It was kind of this isolating sort of factor in Russian society where they said hey you can settle here not outside.
2: Yeah, it was like a segregated Jewish I think Asimov in his late life calls it a Jewish ghetto even. Okay. I'm not even sure if that's true, but that's what he referred to it as.
0: Although um, Petrovici never end up ended up seeing any sort of like strong anti-Jewish violence or pogrom in in its early days. There were some near misses here and there, but it never saw anything severe. That was, of course, until the 1940s yeah. uh, during World War II. Of course. Um, and obviously, uh, Asimov and his family were in New York City by then. And so he says that he didn't. He experienced some anti-Semitism in his life, but at least as far as where he came from in his early life, that wasn't so much a factor. It wasn't, it wasn't the Holocaust factor. No, no. Which and, is
2: great that he got spared that.
0: Yes, very fortunate for him and his family. And when he and his family settled in New York City, his parents owned a series of candy shops. They did, uh, because his father didn't have really the the skill set that was needed to enter into a lot of different industries um, for whatever reason. And so, but he did have the ability to go into sales. And so it was these, it was these candy shops where they got their start.
2: Yeah, and and. This was an interesting thing because I believe this is when Isaac started picking up uh, newspapers that was just going through the shops. And and he liked reading the stories that were constantly new and constantly more new stories coming in through the newspapers.
0: Yeah, because it wasn't just candy in these shops. You know, there's little like soda
2: fountain stuff
0: that the the people could buy. And on the racks, there were magazines and papers and things like that. And so he actually taught himself to read um, amazingly. Yeah, he was, like five. Yeah, he was, Yeah,
1: my brother did that. You know, our whole family kind of picked it up really fast.
0: Well, he taught himself to read and then he taught his own sister to read, too.
1: Well, good for him.
0: Yeah. And, um, and because of that, I mean, at least in his early schooling, things got harder for him as years went on. But mm-hmm. in his early schooling, at least the way he tells it, he didn't really have a lot that could be taught to him because he was just kind of doing fine on his own. This yeah. kind of gets into the question of, you know, how much do you remember about your childhood that is the genuine memory? How much do you kind of remember back onto it? I don't want to say that everything that he says is, uh, is untrustworthy or anything.
2: It, it's probably quite trustworthy. But he was quite, uh, quite but, into yeah, himself. It's true. And, and it, is, it is also true of Isaac's dad, um, Judah, that though he was educated Orthodox Jewish... He kind of never practiced or even pursued further education. So Judah kind of picked up and dropped education and religion as as far as practicing it. So Isaac might have seen that as like, oh, look, he has nothing really to give me. And also, I mean,
0: incidentally, because Judah was never a practicing Jew, he never taught those traditions to Isaac either. Correct. And so he never grew up having any sort of religious, um, religious mindset or or thoughts and obviously that has its impact upon his life and philosophy and writing. Oh, yeah.
1: yeah, very much so.
0: And so um, he became an avid reader very young in life. The thing was is that a lot of the stuff that was in the candy shop, his dad would not actually let him read. And these were things like pulp magazines. I don't want to say comics because I don't think that was as much of a thing quite yet, but Pulp magazines, where it was just kind of popular fiction for kids, um, kind of slapped together and thrown on the shelves. And his dad just thought, "Well, this is just garbage stuff. I don't want you reading this stuff." And so his dad got him a library card, and his mom would take him to the library. His dad just figured that whatever was in the library must be suitable literature, and because you know, because it's it's an American library. Mm-hmm. And so his mom would take him, and eventually he got to go to the library by himself. And he spent a lot of time there, and he just became a reader of everything he could get his hands on, incredibly eclectic tastes, just because he wanted to know all of these different genres and stories, reading through Shakespeare and Greek mythology and other classic literature, (laughs) reading science material, reading history. There's a lot of uh, widespread interest that he had as a kid and he would just read
2: whatever he could get his hands on. It, which, funny adage here, there's going to be a lot of little ads that are in here because we, we know about the very popular parts, and kind of he, he has so many things in his life, it kind of makes you wonder, where did he find the time? Uh, well, sometimes he didn't actually have the time, and as a kid growing up, he spent so much time in the library, we actually find out he never um, did anything coordinated. Never learned to ride a bike or learned how to swim or throw things. Um, And many, many people even reported that, like, he had a hard time opening some doors uh, because, like, he he just had to give them a couple tries. So he was very much a child of the mind. Yes. Not so much (laughs) about
0: the body activity. But, you know, he described the library um, and his own self directed curiosity. He really described that as his real education. And he characterized his childhood and, um, and the freedom that he had to sit and read while he was there in the candy shop too, read the books that he brought from the library as some of the happiest memories that he had. And so, again, that's that's telling for him as he looks back upon his own life, writing from his own perspective, that that is a very formative thing for him from a personal standpoint. But he did eventually get permission to read the pulp magazines in the shop. Uh Part of that was because his dad was reading them, because, <laughs> but he said he wanted to learn English. You know, he's trying to learn English, so he's got to read this stuff. Sure. And so eventually sure, he, dad. he got permission Um, and it was these pulp magazines which really influenced him as a writer. Like this is where he started getting ideas about what it meant to be a writer of fiction and particularly um science fiction. That was what he was most drawn to. Yes. Do you know why they're called pulp magazines?
1: Uh, no, but I feel like it's an acronym.
0: Actually, I did not have any clue about okay. pulp. so it has to do with the quality of the paper.
1: Oh, that makes so much sense. Free pulp, yeah,
0: and oh man, the pulp magazines were just, again, like I said, just kind of thrown together. Like the paper is rough. Like even the edges of the magazines, they're not like finished and stuff like that. They're not even like really well cut. It's just they're just cheap entertainment for kids, and so they got called pulp uh, magazines thats where mm. that term pulp fiction comes from. And that's contrasted with the expression of a slick magazine because uh. those, because the, the higher end magazines mm. had these smooth pages, smooth edges. And so that kind of gives you this idea of where he was getting some of his inspiration from as a writer.
2: That's very interesting.
0: And so we have this, um, we have this bookworm kid who is, um not very coordinated not very socially rehearsed as far as his kid as far as his peers are concerned unpopular kind of an outsider um and that's kind of the young life that he had growing up um but in its own way it kind of paid off because he finished high school at age 15
1: wow i how is that possible like do they not just keep you in the grade all year because of your age or like how did you how did he finish early?
0: I'm not exactly sure. I mean, I've heard of that happening um at other times like other people who graduated high school early, and I yeah. don't really know what that process looks like. Mm. Um but apparently whatever aptitude he had to um prove, he was able to prove it, and so he was done uh with high school at an early age.
2: Mm.
0: Which led to him applying for
2: colleges earlier, isn't it? Yeah,
0: absolutely. Yeah, he um he applied to Columbia University, and oh, okay. I don't really know what he wanted to do,
2: so I'm just going to skip that part. I don't, I don't part. think, well, the thing is, when I was looking at it, I don't think he knew what he wanted to do.
1: He wanted to do everything. He wanted to honestly. do a little bit of everything. He was mm-hmm. interested
2: in chemistry. He was interested in biology. He was interested in physics, and their psychophysique is just coming out at the time. Um, and honestly, all the different sources I could find all said that he was interested in something different, and most of them. The sources said he also had an interest in another thing, and that's why he went to Columbia. Now, that's where I'm starting to think Asimov's three autobiographies <laughs> might be problematic. Yeah. Because what what if he didn't know what he wanted, and then he writes about what he wanted, and he didn't know, now we don't know.
1: Yeah, but it's not terribly uncommon to go into college not knowing quite what you want to do. You yeah, just it didn't seem something. like he had
2: the humility to say that, though. Well. I mean,
0: he was initially uh, rejected from going to Colombia. Now, he explains that. um, He explains from his standpoint that Colombia had a quota for Jewish students, basically. Mm -hmm. So an anti-Semitic sort of system that was set up is the way that he describes it. And that their quota was already filled for the year. So that's some of the experience that he perceived to have had in his life with anti-Semitism. And um, so instead, he accepted admission at Seth Low Junior College, which is in Brooklyn. And um, that was, from his perspective, kind of the funneling off of of Jewish students. When the quota had been filled, they got sent to Seth Lowe Junior College because it was kind of um, a subsidiary of Columbia. But now, then, what,
1: what year was this?
0: It would have been about 1935.
1: 35. Okay, so there is some there is some like immigration reform type stuff going on in the United States, and there is some um like social Darwinism theory going on in the United States at this point. So it's possible that it really was anti that activism. really is what happened to him.
2: I, I have a feeling that it was. I mean, Germany is gearing up for the Holocaust, and I don't I don't think something that big is isolated in, the wor- in one part of the world. I think the whole world had. Strands or veins of it.
1: I think that's what I just said.
2: <laughs> but longer and worse.
0: <laughs> well after two years. At Seth Lowe. Um, he did end up going on to Columbia. Um, and was accepted into Columbia. After a little while. And he graduated with a bachelor's of science. Um, that's another little thing. That he kind of held on to. As something that he was a little bitter about. Mm-hmm. Um, mainly because he 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 kind of thought it was like this mark of second class citizenship almost where every where everyone else who was of uh, a higher class, if you will, would graduate with a bachelor of arts, and so the bachelor of arts was seen as a more prestigious degree, and he thought that he was worthy of it. Um, but his his graduating with a bachelor of science always left a little something, a little bit of a sting, uh, for him. And then he uh, went on and earned a master's degree, and that was in 1941, and then ultimately a doctoral degree in 1948 uh, in chemistry. He he uh, originally wanted to get into med school, and that didn't end up working out. He applied to a lot of different med schools. He applied to Columbia uh, Medical School, and it just didn't work for him. Also, he tells a story about one time where he really got turned off to the idea of med school because he really disliked the sight of blood. and
1: Yeah, that would be a problem.
0: Yeah, you have to kind of, uh, that's, a, that's a big issue there if mm-hmm. you want to get into med school. There was a moment where it was like a dissection in a class, you know, and he just couldn't, he just couldn't do it. And so that kind of also personally turned him off from, from med school anyway.
1: Yeah, that's probably a wise decision. I mean, if you, if you don't want to be around that sort of thing, you know, maybe don't go to med school.
2: Yeah. So he graduated in 1940 from the first one. With the master's degree, he graduated in 41. Okay. Okay. And then from 41, he jumped into a doctorate, right? Because it's about this time, actually, in between, after that master's, that he goes on a blind date with Gertrude, his first wife.
0: Yeah, Gertrude Blugerman in 1942.
1: That,
2: yeah, it's a fun name. That's
1: quite the name. Yeah. That is quite the name.
2: They go on a date, a blind date in February, Mm -hmm. married urban July. Which at this time, not, very normal.
1: Uh, yeah, I'm not sure how abnormal that would be. Very
2: normal. Which nowadays I'm still that's used to. pretty? Yeah, I'm still getting used to that personally, but like, I hear hundreds and thousands of these stories from this time period, where it's like, "Yo, yeah, I met you a couple months ago. Let's let's go. Let's do it. Let's get married."
0: Before we move on with the um, uh, the timeline, as it were, here I want to maybe jump back a little bit because we need to start talking about his early writing and he had already begun writing a lot yes he did that is i mean we education. said that he finished his masters in 41 uh several years prior to that late 30s not several years a few years prior to that while he was in college he was already starting to write short stories and trying to submit them to different sci-fi magazines uh that were there in new york because I think the way that he describes it is he was starting to see these authors that he was seeing all the time that they would get published. And there was their name right on that page. He was kind of looking at them almost like as they were like demigods. And he was very impressed with the ability to get published in a magazine because of the story that you write. And it's like, well, I want to be there, too. You know, I want to do that.
1: Do you know what was attractive to him about being published in that way? Was it some sort of, like, being known?
0: I think that's a big part people, of it. You know? He really wanted to be known. He wanted to be recognized for what he could do. And mm-hmm. he felt like he had a creative streak in him himself. And so he wanted to be able to he see his He had a healthy name.
1: sense of confidence.
0: Uh, yeah,
2: healthy is uh, healthy <laughs> isn't a strong understatement. He
1: had at least a healthy sense of I confidence.
2: Think in the 30s, at that young Asimov, I think it was an okay, kind of good, strong, you know what? I have a good talent here. I want other people to see it. Yeah.
1: It, well, and if he's pushing back against culture and saying, no, I deserve to be seen, it makes sense that you would then say- I have something good. I want to be seen. I deserve to be seen.
0: And he started making connections um, in some of those early years with people who would become like really big names or already were kind of big names. Like um, he was 19 and he joined a sci-fi club that was local called the Futurians. And um, it was actually there where he met Frederick Pohl, who became an incredibly um, renowned sci-fi author to this day. And Frederick Pohl also did become the editor of Super Science Stories. Uh, and that was one of the two magazines where the iRobot stories, as we've read them, it's where they first appeared. Um, that was oh, one okay. of them. There was another magazine I'm trying to recall, but Super Science Stories was one of them. And Frederick Pohl was probably kind of instrumental in helping those get published. Um and uh, he also, I think that was also where he met Robert Heinlein, although at any rate, he worked with Robert Heinlein
2: later at the Philadelphia Naval Yards. Um, okay, yeah, because that's where I I knew their relationship started, but it, you're right, it could have started in writing earlier on.
0: And um, he had already been writing letters to the editors of many different sci-fi magazines and asking questions and giving his feedback, and so This is the 1930s, and so his name is starting to kind of get known by people at these magazines where he's writing in all the time, and his letters to the editor are getting, like, added in the excerpts, like, at the back of the magazine, and so um, somebody like John W. Campbell Jr. already knows who this kid is, even though not personally, and John W. Campbell Jr. was, like, one of the big names in sci-fi magazines at that time, and so— and John W Campbell was the editor of Astounding Stories which he then changed the name to Astounding Science Fiction Okay He had a story that he wanted to get published and so uh, his dad said well why don't you just go into his office into into Campbell's office and ask to see him and ask if he, if he would publish the story and he was he was quite apprehensive about that he's like no no I'm not going to do that and but his dad finally convinced him and he was really surprised when uh the secretary came out and said, All right, he'll see you, come on in. And so suddenly he's sitting in John W. Campbell's office and um and and he says, Yeah, I'll read your story and pretty soon I'll I'll send it back and have some feedback for you and, and, and we'll see. And oh, so that's pretty nice. It was, except when he got the story back, the story was rejected, and so it didn't get published. Um, but the way he describes it is that it was the nicest rejection letter he had ever read and well, that those there are the was, best
1: types of rejection and
0: and it also had advice for him to follow
1: oh good and
0: he would continue sending stories in to campbell but he kept getting feedback every time he would send in something to campbell he would get some some feedback about it how to improve his style how to how to um how to make the story better and eventually he did start getting published with short stories that appeared in certain magazines not originally in Astounding, um, but in other ones. He tells a story about how he wanted to keep his name, like he did not want a pseudonym. A lot of people were writing with pseudonyms, and if you have a name like Isaac Asimov, there's a good likelihood that you would end up writing with a pseudonym because you want your name to be like more normal-sounding. Yep. But he refused. He wanted to keep his name, and he had the feeling that had he been published in Astounding, that Campbell would have insisted that he take a pseudonym because he was just kind of into that. He preferred that, but he got published first in a magazine where the editor didn't care. And so there he was, his own name, um, Isaac Asimov, uh, at the top of that story. And so when he did finally get published in Astounding, Campbell must have just seen his name already, thought, well, he's already established under that name, so we'll, we'll put him in under his own name. So he got to keep... He didn't have to take a pseudonym uh, in order to get published in Astounding.
2: So I think that's a big win. I think that's a really big win. Yeah, it's fortuitous.
1: Yeah, it's nice to have those diversities and see, okay, there are a lot of people. I do a lot of reading for seminary, and I do a lot of, like, reading and Bible things or theology things. Sometimes it's more common to come across a guy with a really weird name, like a guy named Leslie or something like that, rather than to find, like, women authors. So it's really cool that he got to actually keep his name and, and show that that was something to, that his heritage was something to be proud of. So... Was he too young to be drafted into World War II? Or did, like, how did he miss getting shipped off to World That's War II? That's why we're going to talk
2: about it. <laughs>
0: okay. So, what he did was that during World War II, what he did was he served as a civilian chemist um, oh, okay. at the Philadelphia Naval Yards, experimental Naval Yards, something like that. And so, he was serving in a sense, uh, but not in a military sense. Uh, he was serving the Army's interests, but from a science-type perspective. And like I said before, that was actually where he got to know, um, as best as he did, he got to know Robert Heinlein there, who also worked at the Naval Yards. And um, it's interesting. He talks about Heinlein in kind of a bittersweet sort of sort of way, because he says that he was a, a pretty nice guy, but kind of like under the surface, you could tell that sometimes he
2: just kind of had this mean-spirited...
1: Um, yeah, you could nature. pick it up in his writing a little bit.
2: So, so working as a chemist, he got to avoid like outright battle. Um, and then it was actually like a misallotment, I think, of paperwork in, bureau- in the bureaucracy that actually got him out of military work just yeah. before he went to the Bikini Atoll experiment for nuclear explosion, which might have given him cancer, which is a good thing he missed. Right. Yeah. He had
0: very briefly served. It was 1946 where he actually did get drafted, um, but he only spent about nine months, and then he was out uh, with an honorable discharge. So post-war, Asimov kept writing, and then in 1949, he picked up a job teaching biochemistry at Boston University Med School. So he didn't go to med school and then become someone who's teaching med students like in the in the strictest of senses, but he taught them chemistry and he did that from 1949 to uh, 1958, but he's still writing during uh, during all this time
2: and had two kids in this time.
1: Is that with the first wife Gertrude?
2: Yeah. So he's with Gertrude.
1: You go Gertrude.
2: Um, And he had David and Robin Asimov yeah. at the same time. He's doing all this writing and studying. Yeah. Um, eventually he stopped
0: doing research like he had roles as a professor where you know you have to be doing research independently uh, as as part of the faculty but eventually he stopped doing research because he was just writing so much fiction and um, eventually that got him removed from the faculty you're kind of going against the parameters of your contract
2: yes i think i read in yours isaac yours comma isaac asimov that um Like he just, he had more fun writing and more money. He was making, I think he was making like almost $60,000 a year or equivalent to inflation, $60,000 in today's money. That's pretty, that's pretty great. I mean,
0: and it's also interesting to mention how even when he was just in his undergraduate, he was starting to be able to make money from his published uh, magazine stories. He was starting to be able to like pay his tuition. So from very early in his writing career he was using it as a vehicle to kind of employ himself and be able to make a name for himself in in uh out in the sci-fi world yeah and so um i want to i want to get a little bit just a hair into the writing career itself this is um, all you <laughs> well you know what i feel like we both did a little bit uh more gave a little bit more attention to early life and personal aspects. And I think that's fine. I mean, we want to we want to understand how his experience as a person informs his his writing. And so, you know, it's all right. I think if we have a little bit more of the personal side here, Um, but starting with his early writing career, we've already talked about the magazine days, um, but he started publishing novels like starting in 1950 with Pebble in the Sky and I, Robot. But, I mean, like, he didn't stop publishing in magazines. I believe that the foundation, the parts to foundation, it was written in, like, five different parts that were published in a serialized format. And then um, maybe a year or two later, coalesced into a novel that was released. And um, that happened with a few other stories, like Caves of Steel started out as a serialized uh, set of stories in galaxy science fiction. And then it later obviously became its own novel. Um, But the beginnings of his writing career are characterized by his forays into sci-fi. Obviously, it doesn't stay that way um, over the course of his many decades of reading and his many books that he writes. But I would kind of call this like phase one of his writing career being early sci-fi. And that is where we see the beginnings of the robot series. That we'll be covering throughout this whole podcast the foundation series which we'll be covering throughout the podcast and also really the entirety of the galactic empire trilogy happens in this kind of phase 1 of his writing career so this is That's where really the, impressive. it's where the ball gets rolling for him and as far as he is remembered popularly today a lot of it is because of this 15 16 year period starting with uh, the magazine phase and then the and then the novel
2: phase. He was busy, man. I mean, thinking about all that writing he's doing, he was just just discharged, right? Or did he start writing while he was in the military? I mean he started writing before he was in the military. He started writing yeah, that's true. even during his 30s. undergraduate
0: days. Yeah. Uh, but that didn't really convert over into the novel era until about nineteen fifty.
2: Yeah, so I don't I don't know if you caught this, but I, I was able to find out like where he lived and and how often he was moving and he moved twice a year for a couple of years in a row while Gertrude was pregnant with the second kid while carrying around another kid while working, while writing, all at the same time yeah, he was a very a
0: very busy person and um, and it makes sense that that would put a lot of strain on a marriage and on a family when he's doing as much as he's doing And so I think this is a good time for us to take a break, and we will be right back with more on the writing career of Isaac Asimov. Dun, dun, duh. This episode of Galaxy is brought to you by Audible. Audible is the number one source for audiobooks and also offers podcasts, Guided Wellness Programs, Audible Originals, and more. They have thousands of titles, and that includes every Asimov novel that we will be discussing on Galaxy. From Foundation, to iRobot, to the end of eternity, Audible has you covered. In prep for our episodes, I have primarily been listening to these books, because my job affords that to me, and Jacob has been listening during his to-and-from-work commutes as well. Whether commuting, exercising, or just relaxing at home, Audible is a great way to experience new books as well as your all-time favorites. Right now, you can start a 30-day free trial that includes a free title of your choice and access to Audible's content through the Audible Plus catalog. Visit audibletrial.com/galaxypodcast to start your free trial today. That's audibletrial.com/galaxypodcast. And so the last thing we were talking about was kind of what I'm characterizing as phase one of his writing career. And I would classify phase two as a nonfiction period. This shouldn't really be considered a black and white distinction. He wrote a little bit of sci-fi during this time uh, from 1957 to about 1982. So kind of a rough range there. And it wasn't all nonfiction. Again, I think there's like four science fiction novels or something that he wrote during that time. But really this phase, I would characterize it by a lot of disparate volumes on a lot of different subjects. Lots. Yeah. Just about anything you could think of, but primarily science. And when I say that, like things like chemistry, biology, earth sciences, um, astrophysics, stuff like that, uh, but also history, like a history of the Greeks, a history of the Romans, you know, um, those
2: kinds of things. Wow. And, you know, interestingly enough, one of my resources for this episode actually came out of my textbook for my class in psychology because the epistemology of science refers to Asimov all the time.
1: Epistemology.
2: I'm sorry, how do I say it? <laughs>
1: You emphasized this
2: epistemology. Anyway, so so like I was kind of surprised to see in my own coursework that Asimov had shaped how we think about science, even to this day, in psychology of all places. Yeah,
0: um, works as that had to do with psychology. Also, works that had to do with philosophy or different literature. Uh, there's an Asimov's Guide to the Bible. Of course. A two volume set.
1: He sounds like an expert because obviously he's followed his orthodox faith. Well (laughs) that was sarcasm. I
0: could
2: I could feel it. Yeah.
0: But I I, I think that when you said a moment ago, when you said, well, surely he's an expert, I guess that kind of makes me think about this whole period of his writing. And, you know, it's he's not writing as an expert. I think it has to be clear, just from just contextually. Yes, he he has a doctorate in biochemistry, and so, you know, there are definitely fields that he knows about and fields that he has mastery over, but he's writing about so many different things. He cannot Mm -hmm. be coming at all of them from the perspective of an expert.
1: And to be fair, there was, I think, somewhat less distinction in fields during this time period. Like, there is less splitting up of, you know different sciences and different um, humanities kind of study. But it's definitely becoming more and more prominent that they're splitting apart. And it's it's hard to be an expert in one field, but to be an expert in so many fields would be kind of impossible.
0: Yeah, I mean, this whole kind of Swiss army knife sort of appearance that this gives, you know. A Swiss army knife has a whole lot of tools in it, and yet it doesn't have necessarily any one tool that is like totally awesome. You know, they can't all be totally awesome. Um, and what you get the sense of is that he's writing on a popular level, like I would say kind of a broad, um, high altitude sort of level on a lot of these different topics.
2: Uh when I saw him come up in the textbook I'm reading, yes, that was it was mostly like how we understand science as a science, which every scientist goes through and that was it. Right.
0: I mean, when you think about someone who's an expert in their field, they've probably spent years um, in a particular topic, or like a particular area of a particular topic, like you drill down really narrow and you focus in really hard on a very specific area within your field of study and and people spend their entire lives doing that sort of thing in order to in order to write about it and advance the field forward and push the field forward and I kind of wonder if that is why he's not remembered so much for his nonfiction writing obviously again he's strong stronger in some areas than in others but in general you don't hear about him pushing the field of research forward on the study of the ancient greeks or on the study of the persians or something like he's giving again a broad overview that is popularly
2: applicable if you want to find out a little bit about this stuff read this book and, you know, we do see a, a touch of that history bit coming into iRobot at the end, right, where it's like uh, the president is reminiscing on the wars that have been only leads to one end goal. And- Absolutely. Mm. You know, even though he's not an expert
0: on a lot of these things, he's taken a lot of time to gain a very solid overview of history and gain a perspective on history. And so that's informing his writing. I think that's true.
1: He's got a very kind of Renaissance man kind of feel. Like that's what he's going for is to be to know the classics and to know the sciences and to know religion and art and all those things. Like he's trying to get a grasp on all of it.
2: And honestly, I I think he does um, an amiable job.
1: I don't think amiable is the way that you look for. A
2: respectable job.
0: (laughs) We'll go with respectable. So again, that period is from fifty-seven to eighty-two, and. during that time there was there was some
2: pretty big personal upheaval going on in his life right there, there was some heartache there was some heartache
1: tell me what happened to gertrude
2: well gertrude wizened up <laughs>
1: <laughs> gertrude got <laughs> to, tired of it
2: to be kind of brutal i do like asimov i uh but he wasn't um the nicest personable person all the way around and gertrude uh kind of Gertrude and Isaac agreed, and I'm putting air quotes on this, agreed to separate in 1970.
1: Um, hmm. but when did no-fault divorce happen?
2: I have no idea. That's a good question.
1: Because I'm like, okay, so when did, he, when did this actually come to?
2: Yeah, because they agreed to separate in 1970. And to my knowledge, um, that was because uh, David Robin, the younger one, had moved out. And after she moved out, they were they were gone. They were apart. So they're grown now that the children are grown. We don't have to we don't have to handle each other anymore, right? Um, and they and they separated, which then another heartbreaking thing that happened right after that, um, Gertrude left. He went. Isaac went back to New York, and immediately, and I mean like I think it's two weeks, met Janet Jepsen.
1: So no-fault divorce started in California under the governor, Ronald Reagan, in, get this, 1970. Oh. Okay, so it began to kind of populate during the 70s and early 80s.
2: So it might have gotten around to them in 1973 when when the divorce papers finally went through for Isaac and Gertrude.
1: Yeah, that would make sense.
0: Which right after that, uh, not too long after that was when... Isaac and Janet got married.
2: Yeah, and um, to put a further scope on maybe why Gertrude and Isaac didn't quite make it, he well Isaac developed a nickname for himself among many many women, and I mean many women. Uh, Judith Merrill, even even while he was married to Gertrude, like at from at the beginning before they even had their first kid, Judith Merrill came out in one of his own autobiographies calling him the man of many hands, the man of a hundred hands. And we can see where this is going. That's yeah. Really he, uh, what's a good way to put it. I guess patting and goosing women at this time period wasn't uncommon. It wasn't. Ugh, I hate great. that expression. Oh, I know it's the best one I can use though, but Isaac did it so much. And even to his male coworkers, workers
1: that's kind of awkward.
2: That his male coworkers stopped goosing their female coworkers because they finally got some empathy on the situation.
0: Yeah, I saw what you wrote about that. I I, I thought I read it another way.
2: <laughs> I thought that actually, um,
0: one thing that I read was that um, it was Alfred Bester who actually one time uh, came up and gave him a hug in a way that was just like really uncomfortable to him, and that he actually started maybe just a tiny little bit wondering about how he came at people and what their perceptions were. I thought I read about that. but Yeah, Bester
2: uh... Bester was one of the sources and he, uh, he mentioned, like, I never felt so immobilized and then got goosed right after that hug. That same hug we're talking about. So it was you need to Bester who said this? Goosed. It was Bester who, oh. who came across saying, I've never been so immobilized and I've never really had to think about who the target was of all this goosing, and then he started backing off his own uh, behavioral patterns. Uh, I need to read that women. again, because I thought it was the other way around. No, it was uh, okay. It was Bester who That's... received it from Isaac. Which,
0: by the way, if you Horrible. haven't had a chance to read Alfred Bester yet, check out his, um, his most famous work, is called The Star's My Destination, and another good one by him is called The Demolished Man. He also wrote in the early to mid-50s, uh, those two works so if you ever get the chance to to read them i highly recommend them
1: so i just have this image in my head of this creepy lanky man
0: he's not lanky he's
1: okay yeah, not he's lanky this creepy yeah, he's, like
0: he's he's, he's rotund <laughs>
1: <laughs> okay that doesn't make it better this no. you know no muscles unhealthy body guy who and likes to touch really other people. confident in himself Everybody. too that is the worst Everybody. kind of guy to meet. He, like, if you've never met this kind of guy and felt scared,
2: just greasy once he worst. walks in the room.
1: Not um, even greasy, like threatened. I,
2: I might, I might feel greasy when he walks into the room. He, he was actually I feel proud threatened. of this behavior. Did you know this? He was proud of this. Not he wrote, I didn't know that in the least. He wrote That's a book horrible. called oh. "The Sensuous Old Dirty Old Man." That's okay disgusting. now about this himself i will say
0: that this is that title was kind of tongue-in-cheek um because there were other titles around at the time kind of like the sensuous woman you know and talk and it was trying to kind of normalize sexuality and make it something that wasn't taboo to talk about and so things like that and so this title sensuous dirty old man was kind of like a knock at that whole that whole thing and so he kind of did it with a sarcastic air about it but yes it was it's, yeah that's exactly it's still,
1: what the sexual revolution needs is not more creepiness was, I'm not
0: saying that it was good but I will say that there was there was a deliberate hint of irony uh, in the publishing of it Yeah, um, and I don't want to keep like just totally sledgehammering the guy over the head You know, well
2: I kind of, I have two quick comments did you get to read anything from that book no uh, I'll read a single sentence.
1: If you, I, One do I want to hear the sentence?
2: No, you don't. The <sighs> question then is not whether or not a girl should be touched. Gross. The question is merely where, when, and how she should be touched. No. I feel like that places him above so many other people in his own mind that, uh.
1: That's just a power play. Like, yeah.
2: if you want to say he's being sarcastic. But he might
1: st- be being, sorry, go well, ahead.
2: That my I haven't made it to my two statements. The first statement is, your soul doesn't know you're kidding.
1: Yep, that's a good statement.
2: Your soul doesn't know you're kidding. Right? So so yes, we can make jokes, but C.S. Lewis makes a good point in saying we have to take each other very seriously first in order to have good, pure joy. Um, and since Isaac never really did take anyone seriously first, I don't know if we should really take his sarcasm with anything that relieves him of that duty. And my second statement is, Oh, where'd, where'd it go? Oh, 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 I remember. So the second statement is he was an out loud feminist. And I don't see that worldview actually played into this worldview that we read from his own writing. There's inconsistency. Yes.
0: And I think that
2: we've been, we've been talking about this and
0: acknowledging that this aspect of his life is pretty gross it really, at the same time, I still like these books a lot. I
1: love these books, though.
0: And I'm trying to navigate, and I'm sure we're all trying to navigate this in these days, looking upon things which, in retrospect, have incredibly problematic elements. Or looking at people uh, who, in retrospect, had incredibly problematic elements, and not just uh, from an internal and just personal standpoint. I mean, this is stuff that was hurtful to other people and, and shouldn't just be waved off. Uh, and so I'm trying to figure out how to best, how to best navigate that.
1: I think there is some wisdom in separating a little bit without letting go of the fact that he is responsible for hurt. But I think, I think the caution that you have to have is in saying, um, um, this person isn't necessarily trustworthy enough for me to make big decisions based on what they say because of how they live their life. So because he's like a fiction writer, you can read his fiction and I think you can still enjoy his fiction. You can still enjoy his work. But because of the character that you know that he has, I would say, you know, be careful about letting the fiction form you in any way. Um. You have to be careful about that because, because of his worldview and because of the character that he has. So, um, with someone like Tolkien, who you know has this great fiction and he has this great universe, the character of Tolkien is a, is a higher character. So you can trust a little bit more. Can I the deeper applications? Anything that you read, anything that you consume is going to affect you. It's going to Change might be too big of a word, but change in the sense of like a river running over a rock is going to change the rock. So if you if you stay in the same pattern enough, it will change you more. So that would be my caution: is just be aware of that, and then you can still enjoy the fiction, but you need to be aware of what you're allowing to form you and change you.
0: That's a good. That's a really good lesson, I think, and um, and I think that applies to i was going to say that i think that applies to but you had already said that it applies to fiction in general you know i read i started reading the left hand of darkness by ursula Le uh started reading that yesterday another classic sci-fi book and her author's note preceding the actual book was just fantastic where she talked about you know sci-fi is not um predictive ultimately uh, the people who are writing these books have no more business predicting the future than you or I do. It is descriptive. It's about life and humanity and and questions about what's going on right now. And even then, it's only one person's perspective. And so you have no more uh, responsibility to listen to this person and consider them authoritative than you do listening to yourself and considering yourself authoritative. It's kind of a side note, but as we're you talking about the effect of people especially the effect of authors who we kind of put up on a pedestal yep. to impact us and inform our views on things. Mm-hmm. I think this is an important moment to take a step back and remember the humanity of these authors. And you could remember that humanity with either sympathy or pity. Or, and you can remember that humanity with a, a, a strong note of caution, too.
1: Yeah, there's definitely a justice issue here of he did wrong things, and that should not have been excused. Right. Yeah. Also, Jason, as a side note, I love what it says about your character, that you spend time with author's notes. You don't just skip over them. Like that's Those are the kind of readers that an author wants, is someone who's going to read an author's note.
0: Well, to be perfectly honest, uh, it's an audio book. And so I just hit play <laughs> and, and listened to it. You so. couldn't
1: escape from it.
0: I guess you can, if you want to compliment me for not fast forwarding through the author's <laughs> note, then then you can do that.
1: It just seems so in line with your character that you would read an author's note.
0: Well, I appreciate that.
1: And the introduction and the epilogue and the prologue and the, all the little bits.
0: Prologues and epilogues are important.
1: They are. That's
0: true. Frames for the entire story. So um, <laughs> let's go now into kind of this last phase uh third phase as i'm characterizing it of Asimov's writing uh, and i i classify this as a later sci-fi period 82 to 92 and i i classify it as a later sci-fi period even though probably the published works during this time were still more uh more non-fiction like if there's a ratio of fiction and nonfiction, there's probably still more nonfiction coming out. However, I still consider it his later sci-fi era because after several decades of not writing more than just a few sci-fi books, he comes back out of the gate and he begins coming out with new stories for the Robot series, new stories for the Foundation series, and it begins to take all of the storylines which before were pretty well separated from one another. And he begins to weave them together and connect this character over into this timeline and connect this event over into this situation. Even the Galactic Empire trilogy gets brought back into the picture with certain circumstances and events from those books, which suddenly become part of this really, really large overarching narrative that ends up becoming known as the foundation saga. And so that's why i consider this to be his sci-fi period later sci-fi period for that very reason like his capstone
1: yeah he had 20 years to think about it
0: and he also got a lot of fan mail too because people would say what are you going to write some more books in these series you know and finally he kind of he kind of said well all right i will
1: I wonder if he got fan fiction that was like, well, I think, you know, this is my thought about how this character connects over here because they just love that character or something. And he was <laughs> like, you know what? That's interesting. I'm going to go ahead and do that.
2: He did a lot of speaking in sci-fi conventions. Oh, yeah. Then, uh, at yeah. this 20-year mm. period, right? I guess I did-
1: didn't know that sci-fi conventions were that old. Wait, we're talking about the 90s, aren't we?
0: Well, 70s, I mean, he 80s. did a lot of speaking engagements throughout his years. Okay, his years. Okay. And not always at sci fi conventions, but I mean, he would do plenty of speaking engagements at schools and uh, on cruise ships. (laughs) um, Where they
2: cannot escape.
0: Oh, yeah. Absolutely. That's why he would do it. Right? Yeah. Just try to get away. See what happens. (laughs) You will hear my address. And we talked about that third phase of writing uh, as being from 82 to 92. He actually did die in 1992. He had some heart troubles in the later years of his life, and um, he actually, uh, he had heart surgery, and following heart surgery, I think it was like triple bypass or something like that, and following heart surgery, he got a blood transfusion, and it was in the midst of that blood transfusion where he actually contracted HIV. Oh, wow. This is the very beginnings of the HIV AIDS epidemic uh, in the early 80s. And so there was so little known about it, and and in the midst of this transfusion, he got blood that was infected, and uh, they didn't really they didn't really broadcast that. they didn't want to make that something that was publicly known. There was a huge stigma about it. And in fact, even after he died, uh, they didn't for a long time come out with that information, especially because, like right after he died, there was another author who they knew of that basically the same thing happened and they and that person did say what happened to them there was this huge media uh blowback concerning it and so for a long time they didn't say anything but uh in those last several years he wrote kind of the final installments of the foundation series like uh kind of again kind of capstoning his work although we get the sense that the foundation series kind of left off unfinished and you'll you'll see that when we read foundation and earth that it just doesn't feel like it's complete that's a shame
1: but it seems to be fitting because he just was a man who did so much over his life that he was you know he was always doing stuff he always had more to do and just to have that feeling of an unresolved there's more for me to do on his death just seems like a poetic thing
2: that's fitting
1: yeah but sad sad sadly poetic
0: and so I know that we've missed some things Um, this person did so much and we can't really cover all of it hopefully we've covered enough that it again it opens a window a little bit as we're covering these books it's important to look back on the life of the person who wrote them and see how it informs and contextualizes those works You can't always say that, well, okay, well, there's a one-to-one connection between this part of his life and over in this book, but there are some aspects, and we're going to get into them really soon, that feel very familiar in light of the conversation that we've just had.
1: There's lots more about Asimov's life that we didn't cover, so we'd encourage you to, if you're interested in this subject... You know, read some of these biographies and look into his life, even, you know, look him up on Wikipedia. He did a lot. So there's a lot of interesting things. We'll
0: also include links to those biographies, which he wrote in our show notes. And if you want, you can check them out. Most of what I got uh, of the insider stuff came from his uh, final autobiography called I. Asimov. There's also uh, the first one that he wrote called In Memory, Yet Green. Then, he came out with another one called "Enjoy Still Felt," which kind of covered the, his later years. After he died, his wife Janet Asimov, kind of took all the best of these, uh, took the material, like the best material from all three. And there's uh, a volume out there called "It's Been a Good Life." Um, yeah, that's and good so life. if you if you want to get a really condensed version, then that would be a good one to go to. Of course, if you're listening to this podcast, you may have already read these and you might actually know more about asimov than we do and so please uh send us a message and add your two cents about what your favorite thing about asimov was or if you think there was something else problematic about him that we didn't cover uh
2: then we want to hear about that too yeah isaac asimov was a complicated layered person
1: like people are in general.
2: Like people are in general, with wonderful stories to tell, and we are reading those stories. (laughs) It's a good time. Welcome to Galaxy.
1: Get out of Galaxy, we're going home.
2: Going home.
0: (laughs) So if you want to check out more about Galaxy Podcast, you can do so at galaxypodcast.com. You can see all of our episodes, you can also find links to subscribe wherever you listen to your podcasts.
1: You can also check out our Facebook page under Galaxy Podcast.
2: Or you can email us at contact at galaxypodcast.com. Thanks for listening today, and we hope
0: that you'll join us again really soon.
1: We'll see you next time.
0: Bye, everybody.